Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. This is episode number 40. It blows my mind to say that episode number 40. Uh, And it's a solo episode. It's just me today talking at you into your ears. This topic is metrics. I'm going to be doing a survey and trying as best I can to explain kind of all of the bits and pieces of technology and the metrics that they offer, what these things are telling you, if they're important or not, where some of the deficits in the information that we're getting might lie, and how you can best use some of this information to guide your training. Now, it is impossible for me in the time that we have available to us for me to cover every single possible piece of smart running technology out there. I just don't have time, nor do I have the money to buy them all and try them out. That being said, the things that I'm going to talk about are common and widely available. We'll be discussing generally running smartwatch metrics, specifically the proprietary metrics that Garmin smartwatches offer. We'll be touching briefly on Apple Watch along with the metrics you might get from a heart rate monitor versus a watch wearable and the Whoop. Uh, recovery wearable because I got one and it's interesting. So at the very core of our running metrics, we have two pieces of information. We have time and we have distance. From time and distance, we can calculate pace. If nothing else, you should be able to, in some capacity, even whether it's just wearing a Timex watch and driving your car along the route, be able to figure out both time and distance for the runs that you were going on. Now, most of you probably have access to a whole crap ton more information than just time and distance. There are a couple different ways that you measure your time, your distance, and by association, your pace, your speed, how fast you run. If you are wearing a watch that has GPS or you are carrying a phone that has GPS as your way of measuring the distance of your run, Your GPS-based measurement is, how shall we say, varying degrees of accurate versus inaccurate. GPS is a global positioning system. It is a US-based, US government-based satellite navigation system where signals get pinged up onto satellites and pinged back down and triangulates and tells you where you are and then where are you on in relation to where you were the last time it pinged you? And over and over and over again, enough pings, it comes up with how far you've gone and how fast you must be traveling to have gone that distance over that length of time. So GPS can vary from being mostly accurate to being wildly inaccurate, depending on how much coverage there is in your specific area whether there is a lot of stuff in your way, like very, very tall trees or buildings, bridges, overpasses. There are just areas in which GPS coverage is bad. So this is why, one of the reasons why, 
You may have noticed if you run a race on a officially measured course, right? Like, oh, I ran a 5K, I ran a 10K. But my watch said I ran 3.25 miles instead of 3.1, or I ran 6.4 miles instead of 6.2. Well, one, it could be that you were weaving around a lot and added a lot of actual distance to your uh, to your race. But it's also more likely that your GPS just isn't as accurate as you want it to be. Now, think about how accurate that is, though, to be off by so little over such a long period of time. That's pretty dang accurate but it's not 100% accurate. You may also see this if you've ever done a workout around a track, a track, an outdoor track, 400 meter long track. The innermost lane is 400 meters around exactly each out ring out from that is a little bit larger because of how circles work. But you may have noticed if you ran all only in lane one for the entirety of the workout, it's possible that the GPS distance on your watch did not line up with exactly how many meters you know you ran around that track. Which one's more accurate? Well, clearly it's the track. Your watch, your GPS is not going to be more accurate than a track. However, for most situations, our GPS functions perfectly fine. It gets it mostly right most of the time. The other part of this, though, is that your pace is your distance over time. So you may have encountered situations where you're running along and you are checking your pace on your wearable or even carrying your phone and checking your pace that way. I don't recommend carrying things when you run. Please find a different way to measure your pace, Um, like get a watch. (laughs) And you may have noticed that your pace fluctuates. And you're like, oh, I I know I can't be changing my own speed that much. Why is my pace fluctuating so much? And that's because of variations in GPS. Your pace is just your, um, how much time it takes to travel a certain distance. And if the distance accuracy is spotty, well, then the pace accuracy is spotty. Not to mention there's a lag because this stuff literally gets sent up into space and then back down into your device. At its core though, the OG metrics, if you will, are really going to be time and distance, and also pace. Those metrics you can get from any device, honestly. Now, something I talk about a lot and is being used a lot more commonly now is people are using heart rate information, heart rate data in real time, quote unquote, really in air quotes, real time, heart rate information, on their runs, in their runs, and interpreting the data after their runs as a way to guide them into what effort zone they want to be in on that specific run. So what this might look like is, you know your maximum heart rate, you know you wanna stay in a specific range for your easy effort run, usually between 60 and 75% of your maximum heart rate on a five zone max heart rate model. And you say, all right, so I'm gonna use my heart rate data from my wrist-based heart rate optical sensor, or maybe I'm wearing a heart rate strap that broadcasts the heart rate information to my watch. And I'm going to use that heart rate data as another guide on my run. So I'm staying in my easy effort zone using my heart rate data as my guide. And that's great. Heart rate data is a great guide. However, there are a couple of things to keep in mind if you're using heart rate information on your run. One, it's very important to actually be using the proper zones. (laughs) And I know that we talk a lot about easy effort running, easy effort running. 
as being really key to your aerobic development, especially for endurance runners, especially when you're mileage building. However, there is a wide variety between people in what their actual maximum heart rate is and therefore what their easy effort zone roughly is as well because it's not just like for every single person, 75% of their maximum heart rate swift flips a switch. So what we're doing again is using this as a guide, a guide to get it mostly right most of the time. Using an age-based heart rate formula is only going to be an estimate. And I have worked with enough athletes to know by now that, believe it or not, I'd say those estimates are only accurate about half the time. Um, I have had enough people be such outliers based on compared to what their actual maximum heart rate is versus what their age-based estimate heart rate is that like the age-based numbers are basically meaningless. They would be completely in the wrong zones where they're using an age-based formula and not using their actual maximum heart rate information. How do you know what your actual maximum heart rate is? Look back at your historical heart rate data, especially at very, very, very hard efforts. The end of a 5K race. You can also, if you're healthy enough for this, huge caveat, if you're healthy enough, if you're in good enough shape, you're not a brand new runner, can do this, you can actually go out and perform a maximum heart rate test. This will be very, very hard. It will involve hills. It will involve some suffering, but that will also help guide you. If you are going to be using heart rate data in your training, you need to understand what that heart rate data actually is for you. Another thing you can do is actually, if you don't wanna train by maximum heart rate, is use your lactate threshold heart rate models instead. This is getting off topic. This is gonna have to be an entirely other episode. All this to say, if you're using heart rate information, you need to actually use your heart rate information, not an age-based formula. And we also have to discuss the limitations of the wearables that are tracking our heart rate information. Most people get their heart rate data from their wearable, their wrist-based optical sensor heart rate monitor. Now, this is convenient, but it's not as accurate as other forms of measuring your heart rate information. An optical sensor, what it does is it's optical. It literally shines a light down into your arm and looks for your blood pumping through your veins. That is how it measures your heart rate. Depending on your skin tone, it may be more or less accurate. People with darker skin tend to report having more issues with accuracy of wrist-based optical sensors. The other thing is that depending on where your veins are just in your body, it might be right underneath the optical sensor or it might not be. Your your wrist just might not have the right vein placement for better accuracy and heart rate counting with your watch. The other thing to note is there is a lag. There is a definite lag in information between what your heart rate is actually doing and what your optical sensor picks up, a couple seconds or maybe more. And wrist-based optical sensors are far more prone to something called cadence lock. Cadence lock is when your watch mistakes your cadence, the, let's say, vibrations or movement from your foot strikes, your cadence, for your actual heart rate. So if you're experiencing cadence lock, you might notice it where your heart rate and your cadence are the same (laughs) on your runs, or your heart rate is very, very high, near where your cadence is, but you're, you know you're on an easy effort run. I've also noticed in general in heart, wrist-based heart rate monitors, 
Sometimes I go on runs where my heart rate is very low, like within range where it might be for a very easy run, but I'm not on an easy run, I'm on a, a harder run. And I know that the data is wrong and then it'll be low for a while and then all of a sudden it'll jump up back to where it's supposed to be. But the first 30 minutes of my run, the heart rate will have been like, oh, wow, I guess on the beginning of that tempo run, my heart rate was suddenly in the 130s and oh, there it goes up to 165. Like that's definitely a technological glitch because that's not how my body operates. These errors happen because technology is fallible. I know we tend to overly rely on numbers to tell us the things about the world around us because in general, well, technology is cool and it tends to be accurate in most situations, depending on what the technology is. But that doesn't mean that all technology is 100% accurate 100% of the time. So you always have to keep in mind that the data that you're receiving from these wearables might not always be one, accurate, or two, painting the complete picture. Now, if you are wearing a wrist-based optical heart rate monitor or optical sensor, a couple things you can do to increase the accuracy. One, you really wanna wear it fairly snug on your wrist while you're actually running. If it's loose and kind of bouncing around, that will definitely impact its ability to read your heart rate. Two, you wanna keep it, say, two finger widths back from that knobby wrist bone that you have on the outside of your wrist. So you want it to, you don't want it to be like on your wrist joint, you want it to be further up your arm than that. An optical sensor is better than nothing. However, you should not take it as gospel that the information it's giving you is actually what's going on. The reason you use heart rate information is to guide you into the proper effort zone so that you learn what that effort zone feels like. And also that over time, you can notice trends in your heart rate data. A lot of what we're talking about today is long-term trends. There are a lot of data, a lot of metrics, a lot of things we're talking about today where I want you to ignore what it is on a day-to-day basis. That if you really care, you're gonna be looking at it over the course of months or years long trends. Now, heart rate information can be useful in individual runs, but also in long-term patterns as well. Well, you might see this as you notice as you become fitter and develop your aerobic endurance, your aerobic capacity through lots of easy effort running, proper training, and of course having those hard days in there as well, is that your heart rate will go down at the same pace or your pace will get faster at the same heart rate. So both of those things are markers of increased fitness. The other thing heart rate information can be good for, your resting heart rate can tell you a lot of information. Typically, as you increase fitness, your resting heart rate goes down. If your resting heart rate is elevated compared to where it usually is, that is a sign of stress, especially overtraining amongst athletes. All these specific things that a heart rate can tell us. The alternative to wearing a wrist-based heart rate sensor is to wear a heart rate monitor strap, a heart rate strap. You really wouldn't wear this like in your daily life, but this would be something you'd wear when you're actually running. It is electrically based, it relies on electrical conductivity instead of optical sensing. I don't know if you know this, but your heart actually beats. (laughs) It it sends out tiny electrical signals when it beats. Each heartbeat is preceded by a tiny electrical signal and the heart rate uh, chest strap picks up on that. So in terms of accuracy, it is more accurate than wrist-based. 
It has less of a lag than wrist-based. There's no cadence lock on like wrist-based, but of course, it's just one more piece of information. Uh, one more thing you have to buy. I typically find that um, having now had a heart rate monitor, heart rate chest strap for a couple years, it's like night and day. I know when I go out for a run and I'm not wearing it, I know the information I'm getting from my wrist-based is gonna be nearly as accurate. And it's just, if you're going to be using this information, it's important that you know it's as accurate as it possibly can be. So if you don't have a smartwatch with a heart rate monitor, then of course none of this applies because not all smartwatches have heart rate monitors, heart rate uh, sensors, but most of them do at this point. It's also possible that you have a wearable that is not a, a fitness watch, but also somehow gives you heart rate information. I'm thinking of the Whoop. There are other things you can get heart rate information from. But generally speaking, the things that we're gonna be talking about today apply to fitness specific wearables. And one last thing before we move on from heart rate information is that a lot of the apps that we use come with preset heart rate zones. We talked talk about briefly about heart rate zones before. Garmin has heart rate zones. Uh, Strava has heart rate zones, Peloton has heart rate zones, and we talk a lot about the different heart rate zones in Ozone 2, Ozone 3, Ozone 4. Um, everybody seems to configure their zones slightly differently, which is um, annoying at best and kind of really just frustrating and inaccurate at worst. I've noticed more so that when people get a Garmin watch, the Garmin heart rate zones are set very low. So people are very confused and they often come to me and say, I'm having trouble staying in my zone too. And I say, send me your, you know, I should tell them where to find it in the app under your watch settings, under user data, user settings, under heart rate information. And say, send me what you see. And they'll send me something where not only is their uh, maximum heart rate incorrectly estimated by the app, but their actual zone percentages are way off. And I'm thinking, of course, you're having trouble staying in zone two. Your zone two ceiling is like 130. That's very, very low for most runners. And so once we reset their zones properly, they're back on track and it works very, very well. So it's important if you are using the quote unquote preset zones in whatever application that you've chosen, that one, you have your zone set up correctly, you have your maximum heart rate actually in there, and that you also, again, understand that this is all a guide to help you stay in the proper effort zone for that day's run, and not that it's necessarily like you cannot ever go above or below or whatever the thing is. If it's supposed to be a zone two run, stay in zone two for most of the time, assuming that your zone two is set properly. And also don't worry what your heart rate is when you're racing. It's gonna be high, that's the whole point. It's a hard day. Now we've covered distance, we've covered pace, we've covered heart rate. The next thing we're gonna talk about is cadence. Cadence is the number of foot strikes, footsteps you take in one minute on a run. And I know there's a lot of information out there about cadence. Generally speaking, the higher your cadence is, the more efficient you are to a point. There is a bell curve for everything. Yes, it is possible to have a cadence that is too high. This is rare, but it's possible. More often runners fall on the slightly low or actually even very, very low side when it comes to cadence. 
it is more efficient to take more smaller steps from an energy cost perspective than it is to take fewer larger steps. Now you may have heard 180 steps per minute is the ideal cadence. And it's kind of in the middle of the suggested range. Generally speaking, most people want to aim for a cadence between 170 and 190 beats per minute or steps per minute. And I say beats per minute because I'm going to talk about how you can increase your cadence by listening to music at certain beats per minute. But 180 happens to fall smack dab in the middle of the suggested range, 170 to 190. If your cadence falls outside of this, is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily. It is the suggested range, not the only range that your cadence can fall in. If you are a very, very tall person, your cadence will likely be on the lower side. If you're very, very short, your cadence will likely be on the higher side. And then of course there are just also biomechanical differences between each person. One of the reasons you would want to increase your cadence is one, if it's genuinely too low. Uh, I have had some people message me describing cadences where I had to actually say, are, was that a typo? Like, are you telling me your cadence is 125 <laughs> steps per minute? Like I'm genuinely not even sure how some of you are running at cadences that are this low. 120s, 130s, 140s, 150s. That's really something where I would say, hey, you know what? Prove to me you're not overstriding. Otherwise, we're really going to want to work on increasing your cadence. Now, if you are currently employing a run-walk strategy, your average cadence over the course of your run is going to be lower because you're walking. Your walking cadence is much, much lower. If you are looking at what your running cadence is, you want to zoom in on those running sections and only look at your cadence there. For most people who send me information saying I'm concerned about I'm concerned about my cadence, not just like throwing away that they have the cadence of 130 and me being like shocked, but more about reaching out and say I'm confused my my cadence is too low, and then it comes that I find out that they're run walking. That's a totally different story. In every single case where that has happened, the person's running cadence is actually within the acceptable range. It's just that when they average it together with their walking speed, with their walking cadence, the uh, average goes down. So it doesn't matter what your average cadence is. If you're run walking, it only matters what your running cadence is when you're run walking. That being said, like I said, in general, it is more efficient to take more smaller steps instead of fewer larger steps. The other thing when it comes to cadence is that if you are overstriding, if you, when you run, notice that your foot lands in front of you, typically on the heel, on the not always, if your foot lands out in front of the center mass of your body and not underneath you, the center mass of your body, that is called overstriding. That is bad. That is something that we always want to correct because it, it will result in the very least slowing you down at the very worst, pretty severe running injuries. The best way to fix overstriding is to increase your cadence. So that is definitely a situation where increasing your cadence is helpful if you're overstriding. Also, just in general, if your cadence is too low, increasing your efficiency by increasing your cadence. Do you have to aim for 180 beats per minute if your cadence is 150? No, start small. Like let's get you to 160 and maybe 165, maybe 170. But again, the range that's ideal for you is going to be different than the range that's ideal for somebody else couple suggestions to improve your cadence, to increase your cadence. 
focus on taking more smaller steps. Often when people increase their cadence, all they do is take more steps of the same size, end up running at a pace and effort level that's too fast to hold, burn out, get frustrated. And so when we're focusing on increasing your cadence, you want to take more smaller steps. It might feel very weird, itty bitty, rabbity steps, tiny little steps, but trust me, they'll start to feel normal soon enough and then it'll be second nature. The other thing you can do is listen to a metronome app or music with beats per minute in your target range and just step to the beat and just do it. Just do it enough. You are retraining your body. You're retraining your neuromuscular system, a new way of running. It's going to, it's going to take time, but less time than you might think if you do it consistently. So that is cadence. And like with everything else, there is a range aim for between 170 and 190 steps per minute. However, you may be slightly outside of that and that is okay. In general, when we are running faster, our cadence will be higher than when we are running slower and everybody has their own range. However, red flags for me are when there's a huge discrepancy between fast and slow running speeds cadence. If I had an athlete running 180 steps per minute when they were doing like a lactate threshold workout, but they were doing 155 when they were easy running, like that is no, (laughs) something's off there. You do expect to see some difference between paces, but not huge, huge discrepancies like that. So yes, your cadence will be slightly different at slightly at different paces, but still within like a a narrowish range. Personally, my cadence really ranges um, between like 178 and about one, actually maybe in the 190s. If I'm doing if I'm doing speed work, like real speed work probably in the 190s, but that's probably like a 15 beats per minute, steps per minute range between my slowest and my fastest paces. And slowest and fastest paces, minutes, minutes per mile difference. I know some people have very narrow ranges in their paces. Uh, The fitter that you get, the broader, the wider your range will become. So yes, but don't, if you have like 20 plus Steps per minute difference between your slowest and your fastest cadence. You might want to narrow, narrow that in just a little bit. Now, some other running mechanical metrics we're going to talk about. If you just as a note, if you're listening to this episode and thinking, I don't think that my wearable or my app gives me that information. It might not. Not every wearable is going to give you every piece of data that we're going to discuss here today. So that's okay. Don't get confused, just learn about it. A lot of the things we're talking about from here on out also fall under the, you don't necessarily need this information category. Like, oh, cool, that's information that I I have, but do I need to do anything with it? In most situations, the answer to this question is no, you don't need to actually do anything with this information. You just have this information. Where people get really hung up on their running metrics is they are bombarded with a fire hose of metrics after every single run all this information and they think they need to do something with it or interpret it somehow or apply it to their training and you don't i mean for the most part there are a couple of these data points where in very specific situations they might be helpful to shed light on something for the most part the rest of this stuff is not any anything that's going to be a make or break 
for your training. Now that we're going to talk about stride length. One of these metrics, stride length. This is a perfect example of people being bombarded with metrics and wanting to understand how to apply them to their own training. Because I have gotten more than a couple questions about what's the ideal stride length. They'll say, this is my stride length. Is it right? Um, or what, what should I aim for my stride length to be? It's like, well, what? Like, there isn't one. Everybody's is different because it depends on who you are and what kind of runner that you are and what you're running and what your pace is like and what your cadence is and like all these certain things. Your stride length is just a measurement of how much space there is between each of your footsteps when you run. And in general, when you're running at slower speeds, slower paces, your stride length will be smaller because you're running slower. High cadence short stride length, that's normal. Generally, as you increase your pace, you typically will typically increase your cadence first. And then eventually, yes, of course, your stride length will start to increase as well. If you've ever seen the stride length data for elite runners, they are getting a whole lot of distance between each foot strike. Your stride length is kind of a function of how much power you can produce with each foot strike. That is a different conversation. But so I get in questions about what should my ideal stride length be? And there is no ideal stride length. Just like cadence, there's going to be a range depending on how fast you're running on any given day. And also differences between people based on how they're built, how they run, how strong they are, what kind of runners that they are in general. Stride length is one of those, huh, that's interesting, pieces of information that you generally probably don't have to do anything with for almost your entire running career. Another set of metrics that have to do with your running biomechanics are your vertical ratio and your vertical oscillation. Your vertical oscillation is simply a measurement of how much up and down distance you cover over each stride, over each foot strike. Now, vertical oscillation is the actual distance, how much you actually bounce up and down when you run measured in centimeters. And you do need to be wearing special equipment for this measurement. You can't just get it, you certainly can't just get it from your phone. You often can't just get it from your watch. You also need to be wearing a heart rate strap or some sort of other metric measuring device like a foot pod. Is this essential information? No, but if you have a device that gives you this information, you should at least know what it is that you're looking at. So vertical oscillation is how many centimeters of vertical movement you have with each footstep. The general possible range for most runners is somewhere between six and 13 or 14 centimeters of, of bounce, of vertical oscillation. And each runner is different. Each runner's range is going to be different. Your vertical oscillation is going to be different at different speeds. In general, you are looking for a lower vertical oscillation because uh, any movement that's up and down or side to side tends to be movement that's not also helping you move forward. So minimizing your vertical bounce, especially if it's excessive, is important when you are trying to maximize your running efficiency. Now, this does you can never get to zero. There's no such thing as zero vertical oscillation that doesn't exist. And if you intentionally try to artificially minimize your vertical oscillation, that can also backfire on you. 
this is one of those things where it's just kind of good to understand what's normal for you and how your vertical oscillation changes based on different paces that you're running in different situations. This is also a situation where noticing trends over time relative to other things going on in your life can be a benefit. I personally, this is my experience, tend to notice my overall vertical oscillation, the actual centimeters of vertical oscillation increases when I'm having hip mobility issues, when I'm neglecting my hip work, when I'm neglecting my moral routine, when I'm neglecting my strength training, when my hips get all jammed up, my vertical oscillation tends to be higher than when my hips are in a stronger, more mobile place. That's something that I've noticed for myself as a runner. Now, vertical oscillation is the actual centimeters of vertical bounce. Your vertical ratio is the ratio of your vertical bounce compared to your stride length. So you can't have a ratio if you don't have both of those numbers. And this is a percentage. This is not an actual number. And the thing about your vertical ratio is that even though your vertical oscillation tends to increase as your pace gets faster. So you're actually bouncing up and down more, relatively speaking, at faster paces. However, it is over a longer stride length. So your actual vertical oscillation, your actual ratio decreases or should decrease at faster paces, even though the actual centimeters will increase. And so what does this look like? This looks like maybe on an easy run, you have a vertical oscillation or a, sorry, a vertical ratio, again, that percentage, a vertical ratio of let's say nine and a half percent. But when you're at faster paces, that drops down to like 8% or seven and a half percent. That's normal. Now you look at the actual numbers, the centimeters of vertical oscillation, and you have more vertical oscillation at faster speeds, but you also have a larger stride length. So it's all about how the relationship of these things interplay. And again, is this something you should take note of? Not necessarily, unless you are outside the norm here. Again, just with cadence, if you're within that range, you're probably good unless you're overstriding. Same with vertical oscillation. You know, in general, if you're within that range between 6, 13, 14 centimeters, probably okay. If you are, especially when we talk about excessive vertical oscillation, uh, excessive vertical ratio, if you're bouncing down a lot, up and down, up and down, excessively, that actually might be something that needs to be corrected when it comes to the biomechanics of your gait. And it might be something that needs to be fixed in uh, your strength or mobility somewhere in your body, because like I said, my vertical ratio tends to, um, I've, I just, I tend to bounce up and down more when I'm having hip issues. So maybe it's something where it needs to be a hip or strength issue in your body somewhere that is causing that less efficient movement. Maybe it is something to do with your actual gait. Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe it's just that you've never learned to not kind of bounce up and down because we all learn to run in our very own specific idiosyncratic ways when we're new. So that's just really something to look out for. It's not typically something you need to worry about unless you notice changes over time that are also coinciding with other issues that you are experiencing and or you find yourself outside of the quote unquote typical range 
of what we'd expect to see for most runners. Again, there are always outliers. However, it's knowing where you are, maybe talking with a sports physical therapist or a running specific coach who can assess your form, look at that vertical oscillation and help you make a determination about what might need to be done, if anything. Another one of these biomechanical metrics is something called ground contact time. So this is how much time that you, your foot spends on the ground with each stride, with each footstep. It's measured in milliseconds. You spend fractions, you know, milliseconds on the ground with each footstep. In general, running at faster paces is going to have less ground contact time if you ever watched sprinters. <laughs> their feet barely touch the ground. As you fatigue, you also will end up spending longer on the ground, relatively speaking, compared to when you feel fresher. For most people, a ground contact time of between 200 and 300 milliseconds is like totally within normal range. Not to say that you can't fall outside of that range, it's just what we'd normally expect to see. This is definitely a metric where you'd want to notice trends over time, or differences in faster and slower speeds. The other thing you do, if you can, want to look at though, is the ground contact time balance. This is how much time your left versus your right foot spends touching the ground. And if these metrics, if this percentage is skewed, right? In an ideal world, it'd be 50-50. You'd be so perfectly balanced that your right foot and your left foot would spend exactly equal amounts of time on the ground each time they hit the ground while you run. Few of us are so perfectly symmetrical. Small imbalances are very normal. Generally, anywhere between, you know, 49-51 split in either direction is considered within the range of, or, you know, it's probably close enough. We get beyond that, though especially if things change, if things are, if you used to be perfectly symmetrical, but now you're becoming asymmetrical or you, your asymmetry is larger than 51-49 split, that's something to keep an eye on and actually signals that you need, probably need to do something. That is a direct sign that you have an imbalance, whether you notice it or not, because we're talking again, like I said, milliseconds, such small differences that you probably don't even notice it. If you are feeling imbalanced, of course, it's just like biofeedback to like, hey, yeah, I it says I'm imbalanced. I also feel imbalanced. However, if you're noticing that you are have a greater ground contact time imbalance beyond 51-49%, maybe it's you know 52-48% or larger, you need to address the obvious imbalances that are occurring somewhere when you run. And again, this could be caused by a variety of issues. It could be some something even as simple as a, you know, normal strength and mobility deficits, just like I described with my hips earlier, we tend to be more deficient on one side versus the other. We are not symmetrical creatures. That's part of why we um, harp so much. We meeting running coaches and PTs and, and strength and fitness, all the professionals in your life who are telling you like, you need to strength train, you need to strength train. This part of it, this is why, so that we can correct these natural imbalances and asymmetry that exists in all of us. Just everybody's a little bit different and their asymmetry is a little bit different. That's part of it. Um, but anyways, the, the imbalance could be caused by just deficiencies or asymmetries in your strength and mobility. It could be caused by functional leg length discrepancies, which is when 
your body is such that it it's kind of like yanked in a certain way where one of your legs is shorter than the other, but it can be fixed through body work, strength and mobility. You could actually have a structural leg length discrepancy, which means that actually one of your legs is shorter than the other. It could be bad habits. It could be your shoes. It could be a variety of things, but somewhere there is a, some, something's causing an actual concrete imbalance to occur. And if you have the ability to look at this metric, then I would recommend that you do so and check on what your ground contact time balance is. Why does symmetry in running matter? Like, why do we care, right? Like if you're thinking, well, I've looked back and you know, I've been like this for a while and it's not really an issue. And like so many things in running, it's not an issue yet. It's not an issue until it becomes an issue. Just like we talk about taking all your easy days too hard with not getting enough sleep, with not recovering enough. It's never the one thing. It's never the one time that causes the issue. It's the accumulated pattern of the issue that ends up becoming a problem later on. And the problem with so many running injuries is they're not acute running injuries. Like they don't happen like, you know, contact sports, soccer injuries, football injuries, like somebody ran into you and now you're injured. They accumulate like the world's worst pearl around a grain of sand over the course of weeks, months, years in some cases. And asymmetry is definitely something that needs to be corrected whenever you spot it. Now you're probably asking yourself, okay, so what if I do have an asymmetry? Like, what does that tell me, right? Let's say I'm 51.1 to 48.5, like I'm imbalanced, but I don't really feel it. However, I'm, I'm being told by my metrics that it's there. So the leg that spends more time on the ground is the leg that needs to be addressed. So if your left leg is the one that has a higher percentage, your left leg's on the ground 52% of the time or whatever it is, your left leg is the one that is causing or is the root of the imbalance here. Now, you probably already know this about yourself. Most runners tend to have a side that they know is like, well, this side tends to be not as great as the other side. Test your single leg balance, test your single leg strength, work on single leg strength exercises. Many of the strength exercises that we do as runners can be done in single leg instead. You can do single leg bridges, you can do single leg squats, you can do single leg deadlifts. All these things that you do with both legs on the ground, you can probably do with one leg on the ground on each side as well. So that's a really great way to address um, side to side discrepancies or asymmetries between our legs. Beyond that, my recommendation, go to a physical therapist. <laughs> they are qualified to actually assess you in a holistic way beyond me saying, do some single leg deadlifts and see what happens. Uh, because, you know, that might be, you might have identified which side that the asymmetry is originating from, but it doesn't necessarily tell you why the asymmetry is happening. It might be related to your posterior chain. It might be something that is somewhere else in your body. Our bodies are complicated and they're all connected like puppets. You pull one string and something else moves. So. If this is an issue that is ongoing that you can't figure out, definitely go see a physical therapist for a proper assessment. Okay, so the biomechanical, biometric, actual metrics that we have covered today so far include, well, I guess it's not really biomechanical, but we have pace, we have distance and time, we have our heart rate, we have cadence. Now, aside from the biomechanical assessments of what's happening when you're on your run, there are some other metrics 
that some devices track that are like, like, like I guess you call lifestyle metrics, like things that are happening inside your body kind of the rest of the day or in other situations. And in this case, we're talking about resting heart rate, heart rate variability, respiratory rate, and pulse oximetry. Like these are all measurable biometrics that you can get not just from your wearable device, but you could have like taken by a medical professional or in another way. These are not open to interpretation in terms of what a score might be. And we can compare that to some more proprietary metrics down the road, like your fitness score. Like these are actual things. Like your heart rate variability is a real actual biometric measurement. The accuracy of some of these measurements, again, just because wearable technology is not infallible, it's not to say that these are going to be 100% accurate. There is still some interpretation that the technology has to employ in understanding the data that's being fed. However, I want to stress that these are actual metrics. Like heart rate variability is a real metric that you can track and interpret information about based on the information you receive from it. Same with resting heart rate. Like it's a real thing. It just is. It is what it is. Your resting heart rate is what it is. Your heart variability is what it is. The only issue here is really just in, you know, how accurate the measurement of it is based on the device that you have. Resting heart rate, kind of touched on it before, fairly self-explanatory. Your resting heart rate is your heart rate at rest. And there's actually, there's two ways to look at your resting heart rate. One is what your resting heart rate is after you've slept for the night. So measuring your resting heart rate first thing in the morning, looking at the past, you know, four to six hours of what your resting heart rate is when you're sleeping. That is one measurement of your resting heart rate. It's typically the lowest your heart rate tends to be during any given 24 hour period. The other way to look at your resting heart rate is what your heart rate is when you're quote unquote at rest, but when you're awake, when you're up and around doing things, maybe you're just sitting down. The problem with this measurement of resting heart rate, not there's a problem with the measurement, the problem with the data about this is that you might be sitting down at your desk having a panic attack. (laughs) And like, yeah, technically you're at rest, but like you're not resting. So when you're talking about looking at your resting heart rate data, it's most informative to use the heart rate data you receive from that overnight or whenever your sleep period is. So looking at your resting heart rate, the lowest sustained period it typically is, is when you're sleeping. That's the resting heart rate you should be watching. And if you do track your resting heart rate, or you have a wearable device that tracks your resting heart rate for you, you really wanna look at that value as what it is when you wake up first thing in the morning. What's my resting heart rate? Been over the past four to six hours. That's what your quote unquote value of your resting heart rate is on that day. Heart rate variability is very cool. And there could be a whole episode on this. Heart rate variability is the measurement of the regularity between your heartbeats. And you might say, what do you mean my heartbeats pretty regularly? Like technically, yes, it does. However, there are microseconds, millisecond, nanosecond differences between the differences in your heartbeats. Your heart is not perfectly regular, except for, not even except for, um, your heart is less regular between beats, like it still beats, of course, but it's a little bit more loosey-goosey in that rest and digest phase when you are relaxed, when you are recovering, when you're feeling good, when you're not very stressed. 
a higher variability, so more variation between the times, between those heart rate, heartbeats, that indicates that you are in a pretty relaxed, recovered, feeling good, not stressed place. Conversely, your heart rate variability will be low. There will be very little variation in the time between your heartbeats when you are in an active or more alert period. When you are running, your heart rate variability is pretty dang low. You, you are also going to have a low heart rate variability when you are in periods of like focus or high stress, right? Your body is like, I need to be alert. I need to be ready. I'm doing something. I need to be active and ready to go. And it'll actually make your heart rate more regular. It'll bring down that heart rate variability in preparation for action. So you can also interpret that data where your heart rate variability is lower. You are in a more active, alert, higher stress, primed for action situation, not in that calming rest and digest. I'm in recovery mode situation. That's heart rate variability in a nutshell. Your respiratory rate is how many breaths you take per minute. Again, there is a range in your respiratory rate. Generally speaking, a respiratory rate somewhere between 12 and 20 breaths per minute at rest, which that's kind of, that's within normal range. What you're looking for here is not what your respiratory rate is, unless it's maybe outside of that range and then, you know, check with a medical professional, but noticing trends over time. If your respiratory rate specifically increases over the course of days, especially if you're in a very stressful period, an increase in your respiratory rate could signal, be one of those metrics that you check on to see where you are in your recovery. And heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and respiratory rate, these are all metrics that the WHOOP recovery wearable tracks as a way to kind of quantify how your recovery is going, what kind of recovery state you're in. But again, there's a difference here between the actual metrics themselves, the quote unquote raw data, if you will, your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your cadence, your ground contact time, like these are all actual things compared to the proprietary algorithm score assignment interpretation that various devices like to give you based on interpretation of multiple points, multiple data points when it comes to whatever the it's supposed to be measuring. And I'm going to start with one that is available on a variety of devices and has the same absolute meaninglessness to it in most situations, which is your VO2 max as presented to you by your Garmin or your Apple watch or whatever. I think on Apple watch, it's called like cardio fitness or something. Anyways, I cannot stress enough over and over and over again, as loud as I possibly can. This is not your real VO2 max. This is not an actual value. I will repeat it again. This is not your real VO2 max. I get messages every single week from somebody asking me why their VO2 max is going down now that it's summer or that they're doing easy running for most of their runs or whatever the thing is. So say, is something wrong? Why does my VO2 max keep going down? It's not your VO2 max. It is an algorithm using recent data from your runs, including pace and heart rate, and sometimes also your weight, to spit out a quote unquote VO2 max score. And I cannot stress this enough, 
this is not your VO2 max. The only way to get your VO2 max measured is in a lab, getting your blood drawn and getting the, put the gas mask on and you run on a treadmill, you cycle on a bike and they ride and it's hard. <laughs> That's the only way to know your actual VO2 max. What you're seeing on your watch is an algorithm. It's a guess and it's influenced by what you've done recently. So if you have only done easy running recently, your watch doesn't understand that. It assigns a value or an assumption to that and says, well, based on that, I guess, I guess that uh, this, their VO2 max is this. It looks like their VO2 max is going down. First of all, easy running is one of the best ways to increase your VO2 max because it increases your aerobic capacity, increases how much oxygen you can deliver to your muscles because it increases your capillary density, your mitochondrial density, and actually it, incre it increases your VO2 max. But the score might go down while you're doing it. Same thing with why your quote unquote VO2 max score goes down in the summer. It's because you slow down in the summer, not because you're getting less fit. Most people get fitter during summer training because they're training consistently and they're training in challenging conditions. And yet they see their VO2 max score go down and they get really disheartened. And I get it because summer running is hard enough. All the algorithm sees is your pace going down. And that's all it really understands or cares about. Your watch doesn't know you. Your watch doesn't love you like I do. Your watch doesn't care about you or how this run fits into the entirety of your training. So should you pay attention to it? No, like not at all. And I have some people say, can I look at it like over the course of months? I would say, I, I honestly think you should look at it over the course of years. If you're going to look at it at all, I would rather that you didn't. Because one, it's not real. Have I said that? It's not real. Two, um, it's more likely than not going to make you feel bad. And three, if it is going up, that's also not necessarily an indication of your fitness. So it's far more important to use other metrics in your workouts to determine what your fitness is than it is to look at your quote unquote VO2 max score on your watch. Another one that I get a lot of questions about and the one that seems to cause people the most concern is something that uh, on Garmin is called training status. On Strava, it's called your fitness score. These are attempts to quantify what your current training is in relation to your overall recent training load. And what do I mean by that? I mean that both of these metrics and, and similar ones like them are attempts to put your today's workout, today's run, today's session in the context of what you've been doing recently and makes assumptions about what state you're in. So your Garmin will look at the relative intensity of the sessions you've been doing, right? So duration, effort as compared to what you've done previously, what your heart rate is, what your pace is in this session compared to similar or recent sessions, and then assign values to that in the context of your overall training. So if you've been doing a lot of really, really, really intense training recently, that is going to result in a, a different calculation than if you've been doing um, a variety of training, hard and easy versus all easy. If you're in a peak week, if you're in a taper week, if you're in uh, an off period, if you like whatever the thing is, it's looking at more recent historical data and interpreting the 
intensity, the relative intensity of that session based and also what your quote unquote performance was in that session compared to previous recent known data points. And then it'll pop up a little notification and say your training status is this. And sometimes there's an up arrow and sometimes there's a down arrow. And sometimes this information is only serving to make us feel bad about what we're doing. But let's go through and understand exactly what each of these training statuses actually like is trying to tell us. And then in each one, we're going to discuss some of the ways in which it might not be capturing the full picture of what's actually happening in your training. And I'm going to just say at the outset, like, I don't think that you should put all that much stock in this because clearly it's not a perfect technology. So if it's not serving you well, don't pay attention to it. And I would actually recommend that you turn it off. You can, by the way, you can, you can turn off or pause Garmin's calculations and updates to your training status. If this information is causing you anxiety, discomfort, um, it's not adding to your training. And if it's actively taking away from your training, I would recommend that you remove the metric from your eyesight, like just turn it off. So you're not even getting it. Okay. But let's talk about what these actually mean. So no status means that you just don't have enough information yet, right? If you don't have a training status, you don't have, there's not enough metrics. Now it's important to understand exactly what this training status is comprised of because um, it makes a lot of assumptions and then uses assumptions to make the assumptions as well. So a couple of the proprietary assumptions that Garmin uses in calculating your training status are changes to your VO2 max score, which as we've already discussed is not uh, super accurate changes to what Garmin calls your performance conditions. And in Garmin, your performance conditions are, um, it, it uses historical data to assign what your typical heart rate is at any given pace. And then if it's higher or lower than that, it assigns a positive or negative value for that. So if your heart rate at 10 minutes per mile is typically 135 or 140, but on this run, it was 150, that's a negative. It's higher than it should be typically. Hey, maybe it was crazy hot outside. Maybe you were running up a hill. Maybe you're in the middle of a monster training cycle and you're overly fatigued. So you're taking your easy run super easy or for whatever reason, your heart rate was high on that day. Maybe you're in the last half of your menstrual cycle, whatever the thing is. Conversely, if your heart rate was lower than it typically is, let's say it was 130, your performance condition will be a positive. Oh my God, yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, all these things, like in theory, that sounds really good, but there is so many fluctuations that we need to consider just on a normal day-to-day basis that using performance condition plus overall training intensity, the training load of your training now compared to previously, plus that calculation of VO2 max, Like, do you see how if there's a a problematic assumption early on that it creates a cascade of problematic assumptions up the chain, resulting in a training status that is basically worthless? 
in terms of the information that it's giving you. So that's why I'm saying like, take all of this with not even like a massive grain of salt, like understand what these training statuses purport to tell you, but also understand that they are relying on a slew of assumptions with varying degrees of accuracy or inaccuracy and not always understanding the specifics of your training, your body, your periodization, your conditions, all of these things. So that's that's like where I think it's really under, important to understand the context of how these proprietary scores are assigned to us and also point out all of the numerous points along the way in which errors in accuracy and errors in these assumptions can add up into something where it's like, that's just, that's, that's just wrong. That's, that's what, that's not even close to what's happening to me in my training right now. Okay. So back to the statuses, we did no status. That's pretty self-explanatory. If you are overreaching, your training load is very high and your fitness is declining. You need to back off your training doing a lot of hard work without recovering in between, you know, or allowing yourself enough recovery from the hard work that you're doing can absolutely result in overreaching. However, you can also overreach by doing the same amount of training and under recovering. Overreaching and overtraining syndrome are not issues of training too hard. They're issues of not recovering enough. So kind of a little (laughs) point of contention there about the vocabulary that is being used. But that is what, according to Garmin status, overreaching means. Your training load is very, very high and you need to rest. Detraining means that, according to them, you are training less than usual for over a week. And according to them, it's affecting your fitness level. Now, you might see detraining when you're doing something like tapering. Um, I'm pretty sure that when you taper, it's not called detraining, it's called tapering and calling a detraining is pretty counterproductive. There are also normal fluctuations in your fitness load, your training load for a variety of reasons, according to the periodization of your training cycle. So this is not necessarily, doesn't mean that you're losing fitness, although many people interpret it to be such. Unproductive. I think this one is the really one of the ones that that really pisses people off the most. And I understand why, because let's say you just did a 20 mile run and your watch says that was unproductive. This does not actually mean your run was unproductive. It means that your fitness metrics have not increased based on the work you just did. This is why you might get unproductive after doing something like a 20 mile run or a really hard workout or a race. And your watch might say like, that was unproductive. So I like, again, if this, if you're seeing this a lot or when you see this, it bothers you, I would recommend turning off training status. Uh, Unproductive does not mean what you think it means. And calling it unproductive is very unproductive. Another training status you might see is recovery. So this indicates a lighter recovery or a lighter training load, typically after a period of harder training. And when I talk about it, looking at your recent training and then kind of like the, the, in the context of your longer term recent training, it's really looking at probably the last seven days of your training, your recent seven day average training load compared to the previous, maybe it's 50, 60 days, the recent context 
of your training this week compared to the previous two months. So this week compared to the previous eight weeks. And recovery um, means that you're in a lighter training load, which according to the Garmin is facilitating a period of recovery. Now, of course, like we talked about previously, periodization of your training is essential to proper training. Periodization refers to the varying um, volume, intensity, and frequency of trainings that you go through. You can't just like train and do the same thing every single day or every single week. It's not an effective way to train. You need to go through these natural ebbs and flows to best adapt your body to what you're trying to do. Recovery is part of that. Now, if you see recovery as a training status, does that mean you're in recovery? Not necessarily. Um, again, like this may not match up with what is actually happening in your training. Um, and now another one you might see is maintaining, like, oh, you're maintaining your fitness. Basically, your fitness load is relatively unchanged, but also so are your fitness scores. If you are receiving a, hey, you're maintaining, like that's not a bad thing. You don't necessarily need to be doing anything different, but according to Garmin, your training load is unchanging as are your metrics of how it tracks what your fitness is. Productive is when your Garmin is saying that your fitness metrics are quote unquote improving. Performance conditions on your run, the training load that you're doing, how much hard training that you're doing, if there's any increase to your VO2 max, all of those things according to your Garmin, if you are in a productive state, a productive training status, then your fitness metrics are increasing or improving. And then peaking, this is interesting. Pe people tend to misinterpret what peaking actually means. Um, peaking is actually technically another uh, word for tapering. Peaking is when you, so ta during your taper, your actual training tapers, right? Your, your actual training volume, your training load tapers down, but your body then takes that and rebounds and peaks into peak fitness. Now, it is correct that you can only maintain a couple very short-term peaks in fitness over the course of a year. You cannot maintain you cannot maintain peak fitness. That's not a physiological thing you are capable of doing. You train hard, then you taper, and then that taper after the very hard work like catapults you into a fitness peak for a very short period of time. And part of the um, not tr trickiness, but um, complications of when you're doing interesting sorts of training, especially if you're attempting multiple races, let's say you're um, a high school or college student who is participating in cross country or track, how do you maintain peak fitness for each of your races? Well, you can't. Ideally, what you're doing is you're peaking for the important stuff, ideally when the most important meets are, or when it's most important for you to perform well as an individual. Now. In these cases, if you are chasing feedback rather than just training properly, that's not gonna be an effective way to train. So if you are specifically chasing a higher Strava fitness score, or you are trying to manipulate your training such that you receive certain feedback from your Garmin training status, that's not an appropriate way for you to train. You need to do proper training based on everything that you know about yourself, ideally working with a running coach, 
to actually train for your specific goals and your specific ability, undertaking some of these metrics if needed into consideration, your sleep, your resting heart rate, um, you know, your heart rate variability, if you have it, these can be metrics that are helpful in receiving biofeedback about how you're recovering from your runs. But then to have Garmin spit out that you're detraining or to have your Strava fitness score decrease after you've just done a whole bunch of really hard work, that's really one of the most demoralizing things I can think of to have your watch or your app tell you like, wow, (laughs) yeah, nice try. Like, ouch, you just did a really kick-ass training block and apparently it was for nothing because your training score went down or your fitness score decreased. Like, what is going on here? Now, again, I really do applaud the fact that they want this to exist because it would be so great for people to be able to interpret this data correctly. However, this is not something you should put a whole lot of weight in. If you are going to be tracking how your training is going, you need to be looking at other metrics like, how do you feel? How are you feeling? Honestly, how are you feeling compared to the training that you're doing? How are you sleeping? How are you running? How does it feel when you run hard versus run easy? Are you able to complete the mileage? Are you struggling or are you handling it? Are you tired but recovering or tired and not recovering? Those are all, we, we sometimes at the end of the day, like we have all these metrics available to us and we kind of forget how we're supposed to feel and use our actual feeling to guide what we're doing. And I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, I've had insomnia in the past, let's say, put it this way. I need a lot of sleep, but I tend to have trouble falling asleep. So a long time ago, I downloaded a sleep tracker app so I could like track my sleep over time. And it got to the point where like sometime in the past few months, I realized how ridiculously over-dependent I'd become on a piece of data telling me how I felt rather than understanding how I felt when <laughs> one morning, my husband asked me, like every day, hey, how'd you sleep? And I didn't know. I opened up my app and looked at what, how it told me I had slept before I answered. Instead of just saying, hey, you know, I think I slept pretty well. Or, you know, I don't really sleep that great. I didn't know how I'd slept because I was so reliant on the app to tell me how well I'd slept. That I'd stopped making the connection between how I felt and what had actually happened. I was looking at the app and saying, well, the app said I slept really well, so apparently I slept really well. When we're running, we have access to so, and just in general, at this point in time, we have access to so much technology and so many different metrics at so many, for almost everything that we do. And it feels like there's a new thing coming out every day. And I know I didn't talk specifically about it. Like I have a whoop. Yes, I do. Some of the metrics I talked about here are available on the whoop. And yes, it does spit out scores like strain, which is another interesting one. I haven't quite figured out how I feel about that one yet. But it's also just a a whoop, a Garmin, a Aura Ring, whatever it is that you wear, your Apple Watch, your Fitbit, your step counter, all these things. At the end of the day, you can't rely on these things to tell you how you feel. Can you use them as tools? Of course, of course. I've just told you how, how to actually look at the things that matter and maybe some things that don't. Yes, use your heart rate as a guide for sure. You know, understand that your GPS might be a little wonky in your neighborhood, but you know, it's more accurate than guessing, right? 
yes, ground contact time balance actually can be useful in helping you understand if you have asymmetries in your gait. That is a useful tool. But in terms of, hey, how did your run feel? How did you sleep last night? How are you doing emotionally? Those things you have to feel for yourself. Your watch can't tell you how you feel. It'll try. Of course, it's going to try. They're trying every day to make these algorithms more and more accurate. But it's not how you actually feel. And if you rely on it too much to tell you how you feel, you are losing touch with your ability to actually feel how you feel. Because when we race, or even when we run, even if you've never raced in your life and you have no intention of doing so, the most important thing you can do when you run is dial into your effort because it only matters what your effort feels like, how you feel in the moment, how much more you have left to give. That's the only thing that really matters, how you feel. And yeah, use the metrics to help guide you, but don't forget how you actually feel. So that's this week's episode on metrics and gadgets and gizmos. And um, I don't mean to sound down on technology because I'm not and I am somebody who uses all of these metrics or most of them in my daily life with myself with some of my athletes as well and I don't want it to come across like technology is bad because it's not I freaking love technology and I love numbers and I love data and I love spreadsheets and I love interpreting things and I'm fascinated by the fact that they've created devices that can give us things like training status and fitness score and all this stuff. I think that's so cool and I'm definitely going to keep using it. But I never want you to get to a place where you're relying on a piece of technology to tell you how you actually feel inside. Because if you don't know how you feel, how are you supposed to train properly? If you can't listen to your body, what is all of this for? One of the most amazing gifts that running has given me is the ability to become more in tune with my body than like I ever thought possible. The ability to distinguish between, okay, like I can run through this versus I think something's actually wrong and being able to detect those things fairly early on. Whereas before I started running, I was so out of touch with my body, with how I felt, with everything that... I was like, I was basically numb the whole time in comparison. One of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself as a runner or as a person is to really get in touch with how things are feeling on the inside, emotionally, physically, mentally. And if you have to use technology to help guide you, again, that's fantastic. If you're the kind of person who tends to overdo it and needs some technology to help you rein it back in, that's also great. Use it as a tool, but ideally, through this entire process, you will be learning how to connect your actual feeling with the data that you see so that you can become more and more in tune without having to rely on the data to tell you how you feel. And one of the best examples of this is, this has happened to me and it's now happened with some of the runners that I work with, and it's so exciting to hear them describe this happening. I talk so much about easy running that, hi, I hope this isn't new, a <laughs> new topic for you, um, listener, but all my athletes, I do like to keep them within a certain easy heart rate range, right? And when you're first starting out, 
keeping your easy days truly easy to build that aerobic development, that aerobic capacity, it can be really challenging not only to stay in your easy heart rate zone, but to understand the difference between what that feels like versus when you get out of it, right? So for a lot of runners who are the very first time spending time in this zone, they have what's called intensity blindness, where they are outside of their easy zone, they're running harder than they should be, but they haven't made the connection between what it feels like yet. So they haven't really had the experience of understanding, but this is my easy zone and a little bit harder than this is outside my easy zone. But eventually through practice, through a lot of practice and experience, they start to make that connection. And I have had several of my runners, so exciting because I remember when this happened to me too, say to me now, you know, I can basically tell within a couple beats of when my heart rate rises out of what my normal easy range is. I can just tell. And just without even looking at my watch, I can just tell. And that is a excellent, this is an excellent illustration of the marriage between understanding how you feel and using technology as your guide. So it's just one of many examples. So anyways, I love technology and I think it's wonderful and fantastic. We should use it, but don't let it boss you around. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.